Hey there. Thank you for listening to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. This is Clark Chilton, Associate Pastor of Contemporary Worship and Evangelism. For the month of September, we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about family. And the sermon series we're doing is called Family Life. We're going to look at some of the practical things the Bible has to say about marriage, singleness, parenting, and more. So dig in with us. We hope this series is a blessing to you. And thanks again for listening. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for worshiping with us here at Wesley Memorial. As I said earlier, um, we're looking at getting all of our service back indoors, uh, wearing masks, being physically distanced two weeks from today. Uh, So be looking for information about that, and uh, we would love to be back together. It'll be a great and glorious day, even with masks on and doing it safely. Um, Man, it's been a long time. I like talking to a camera, I guess, but I'm ready for this to talk to y'all again and us to be together in person. And that segues perfectly into today's topic of the body of Christ, the church as family. And I may be looking at more of the church as a global family um, as we finish this series called Family Life, where we talked about marriage and parenting, singleness, and I've heard from a lot of people that have gotten a lot of good stuff out of it, and we're grateful to God for that. And if you've missed a week, just go to wesleymemorial.org or subscribe to our podcast, and you can listen to those uh, sermons from the past couple of weeks. Now, you may have heard the, this, the saying, you can't choose your family. You probably heard that. Uh, You can't choose your family, but you can choose your therapist. That's the sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek joke there. Um, And it's better that way, though. It's better, though. Even though there might be difficult in family, there may be situations where it was hard, um, it's better that way that that we didn't. Because in some ways, the blessings are better that way. And it's the same with the church family as well. You can't necessarily, you can't choose a church you go to, but you're not going to choose who's a part of the global church. And... Uh, and that we are knit together in this in this glorious, mysterious way, this idea that the church is a global family. And the church, in the way that God has designed it in all of his wisdom, is that the global church is a colored people of all different walks of life and cultures and ethnicities. We are a diverse city that's full of diversity in in just how our earthly family may be interconnected by, by the blood if, that we share between family members, so much more is the church of Jesus Christ is that we are connected by the blood of Jesus, if you will. We are washed in his blood, forgiven of our sins, included in this new community, if you will. His new life, his spirit runs through our, our spiritual veins, if you will. Now, someone can be listening to this go, listening to this and say, yeah, 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 hold on. How is global Christianity, in all of its expansiveness, its billions of followers and ad- adherents, how is the, this church possibly a family when on the surface it looks as if it's fractured more than ever? Now, thanks to a Google search I did on this, which ironically pointed me to an encyclopedia article. If you don't know what an encyclopedia is, Google it. But there are a lot of denominations. Uh, Just in the Anglican Church, there's 168. In the Catholic Church, there's 242 iterations. The Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, 781. The Protestants, that's us, 
over 9,000 denominations. You could go on and on, and you see all of these expressions of the Christian faith, and you could be asking yourself, what could these possibly have in common with each other? How could the church be a global family, the body of Christ, when it doesn't appear to be so? I think we need to redefine, though, what we mean by family, if you will. And you can look at it as a family tree. Now, we could have our origins could be the same. We could have a shared commitment to Scripture. And what I'll get into in a minute, though, is that there is a shared creed by which we all subscribe to that does, I believe, unite us as a global family, the global body of Jesus Christ. And indeed, the global family of Jesus, the global church, isn't more one today than it's ever been before. This may not be the case for certain sections of the Methodist church in the United States that denies the lordship of Jesus, the authority of the scriptures, but globally, more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ than at any other time in the history of the world. You're not going to hear about that on the news But it's true. Global Christianity is the most inclusive movement of all time. The Church of Jesus Christ is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic movement in the history of the world. More people from more countries speaking more languages belong to the body of Christ than any movement whether religious or secular, and that is undeniable. Our global diversity of the church of Jesus is mimicking the beautiful diversity that already exists now in heaven, where people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, in a multitude too vast to count, are worshiping God at this very moment. And the church here and now on earth continues and When we pray, God, let it be on earth as it is in heaven, God is hearing that prayer. How beautiful is that? And we get to be a part of that here and now and then live into that, into the future. You see, the growth of the church of Jesus Christ is no accident. It's no accident that the gospel of Jesus transcends cultures and languages. It's no accident that people are drawn to the message of Jesus because... The Judeo-Christian worldview answers the four fundamental questions of reality. There's four real fundamental questions of reality. And the message of Jesus, the Judeo-Christian worldview, is the only one that answers all four. The great, uh, the great apologist Ravi Zacharias, who went on to glory earlier this year, the great preacher and teacher and theologian, He accurately said that there are four fundamental questions of reality, and Christianity answers all four. And this is why the global church, it meets, the gospel of Jesus meets the deepest needs of the human heart. And those four things are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin. The gospel of, God, of Jesus, the, the Bible really tells us our origin. We are made from, God has made us and he wants to redeem us. It gives us an answer to our origin. Morale or meaning. 
The gospel of Jesus gives meaning to our lives and purpose for living. Morality, scriptures, and the Holy Spirit lead us to make wise and moral and ethical choices. Destiny. The gospel of Jesus helps us know where not only where we will go for eternity, but also helps us realize our calling and purpose in this life. Do you see how Christianity gives answers to these questions that not only are cohesive within itself, but they are congruent with our natural experience outside of even a religious experience. Christianity gives answers to the deepest need of our life. And so this is one reason why the gospel of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, transcends every culture and ethnicity and language because it meets the deepest needs of the human heart. And not only those four things that I said, Christianity provides the deep need of belonging, of being deeply in love, deeply fundamentally loved. You see, Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins, which of course he does and forgives us of our sins, but just as baptism is the entry point, one of the entry points into the Christian community, and it is, after that, God weaves us into a new human community, the church. There's no longer me, but we. And those of us who are in Christ, we are built together. We are, if you will, Second Peter says, we are living stones that God uses to build his Church, you and I have a fundamental role to play together. And the Spirit of God links us together. He's the mortar, if you will, that helps us build on one another and build up the body of Christ. That's why, as Jack Johnson said, hey, it's always better when we're together. And we don't really, if you're one of those fair weather, I'm here when I can and all that, that's fine. We love you. We want you to be here. But we're better when we're together. The church is better when we are united together. And we'll look forward to those two weeks when we get to be together again. Because God builds us up into his holy temple by his grace. And Christ, Jesus himself, is the cornerstone. We build all of that on him, as we see here today in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, starting in verse 19, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. So stop there. Those who, anyone that puts their faith in Christ, that professes that he is Lord and believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth, they will be saved. And they are no longer a stranger. You're no longer an alien. You're no longer an outcast. I know some churches don't always get that right, but we're trying to get that right here where you are welcome because we are all part of the body of Christ. We are, and then Paul goes on to say, you are citizens with the saints. You are citizens with those who have gone on ahead of us, the cloud of witnesses. You are citizens with the saints. You're also members of the household of God. This is a term of intimacy. That because of Jesus, that we are welcome into the family. You're welcome into the household of God. Verse 20. You're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That because of those who have gone before us, we stand on their shoulders, if you will. The apostles, the prophets, the great men and women of the church who have gone ahead of us. We stand on their shoulders. We're not smarter than them. 
But we get to build upon the witness that they have set upon for us. And here Paul says, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. It is because of him that the global church exists. And we build our life, our witness on his witness. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Grows, future tense here. The church is not done growing. It's continually growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We are part of that. This is incredible. In whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place of God. That we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that as we receive by a free gift of grace, we can by, by faith say, Lord, I receive your Holy Spirit. Cleanse me from within. Make me new. And I want we can have the indwelling presence of Christ in our lives by faith. And then as those living stones are built up, we grow up into him, the head of the church. So I know you're thinking, hey, that sounds great. Wow, great promises of God. Now, more often than not, though, you could visit other churches around the world. You might not feel that. There is a distinctiveness, I believe, that sets that either unites us as the global church or not. And I'll get to that in a minute, because not all churches are the same. But there is experiences and there is a shared creed that we can have, that we have as Christians that unites us as one. About 12 years ago, I went on a medical mission trip to the Dominican Republic. And while we were there, I'm not, I don't speak very good Spanish, but we knew one song in Spanish that I could play and another girl would sing in Spanish. And so when the, one of the pastors in Santo Domingo knew that we could do that, and they're so, the people there are so warm and friendly and awesome and hospitable, but he knew that we could, we could sing. So he put us on the back of a pickup truck and drove us all around town each night, and we would go to these little church meetings. They'd meet in carports and people's living rooms and backyards. And we'd get up and we'd sing our song, and they would sing along. And then one night, a guy who could speak a little bit of English, he said, hey, let, um, I want to play with you. I'm going to play guitar with you. And I said, great. So I said, what do you want to sing? And he said, do you know the song, Breathe? You know, this is the air I breathe. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know that. So we started to play, and, and the girl that was with me, she sang it in English. And then all the people that were there, they came in, and they sang it in Spanish. And we all sang the song together, and it made this beautiful sound that transcended language and barrier. And it, it, it felt like it was the chorus of heaven. It was bigger than a, than a language or even a dividing line. And you could feel the Spirit of God present. It was an incredible moment, this moment of worship. And the Spirit was present. And then I, I was thinking back on that experience. And, and what was it that made us connected in that moment? That, that made us, you know, we, we know we were part of the global body of Christ. I couldn't even speak the same language at all. I mean, I could say like, you know, donde esta... El Baño, that's about the extent of my Spanish. But so yeah, the spirit was present and we felt that. We loved Jesus together. But what do we share in that moment though? 
Because here's what I've discovered is that if you only look at the differences we have as a people, and now more than ever, amen, if we only look at the differences, what are you going to see? Well, we're only going to see differences. But there is a shared commitment, a shared creed. The creed, a creed shines the light on our allegiances, what we share in common. This is why we need to have a, a creedal faith. I love how in this church, the Apostles' Creed gets read every week at the traditional service. Creeds maintain the unity of our connection. And what is the oldest creed in our faith? What is the creed that I believe unites us as one? There is a creed that has been found written on the walls of first century Christians. There is a creed that is reiterated through New Testament writings from Paul to Peter throughout the New Testament. And it is this creed. It's short. You can remember this one. Jesus is Lord. This creed unites the global church as family. Jesus is Lord, fully man and fully God, a hypostatic union to use a fancy theological term, that he's fully man and fully God. He's fully man and he's fully Lord over all. Paul's sermon on the day of Pentecost carried this idea of Jesus is Lord from the very beginning from the very beginning of the church, Paul said, Peter said, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. He has made him Lord and Messiah. The Lordship of Jesus was proclaimed from the very beginning. Peter declared in the house of Cornelius in Acts 10, stating that Jesus is Lord of all. Romans 10 Paul connects Jesus' lordship with his and our future resurrection when he said, if you declare with your mouth, there's power in saying it, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's so simple a child can understand it. And if you're listening to this now and you've never done that, God invites you to him to himself. To declare with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that he has raised him from the dead. This is an undeniable fact. The resurrection is real. And you can know the truth and the reality of it in your heart and mind and soul today. And God will save you from your sins, from death and hell and judgment. He will save you. Jesus is Lord. From the beginning, Jesus said, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Paul in Colossians 1 writes these astounding words about the lordship of Jesus. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. There's no low Christology in the Bible. Low Christology is a man-made term that arrogant pastors and theologians made up. There is only Christ as Lord, a cosmic Christ, that he is Lord of all. He has complete authority and control over every area of natural or supernatural existence. 
The Bible records he has authority over spiritual teaching, over social and cultural structures. He has authority over the natural world. He has authority over the weather. He has authority over physical disease and demonic possession. He has authority over death, hell, and even the powers of heaven. He is the head of the church and the cornerstone of all creation. And the term Lord was fraught with um, scandal in the first century. And even today, if we really follow it through, it's still scandalous. The word Lord back then was used to describe the Jewish God. Well, that would make some Jewish people angry. And the term Lord was used to describe even pagan deities. So to ascribe that Jesus is Lord was to make the claim that Jesus was God in flesh and that he somehow superseded all other quote-unquote deities. This was precisely the claim that Jesus made about himself Luke 6, 46, throughout other passages of Scripture, as well as the bold claims throughout the New Testament. The implications are clear. Jesus is Lord, he is Master, he is Messiah, and he is King. And this creed binds us as the family of God. He is Lord. It is like an invisible string that moves and weaves and connects us as one, as believers worldwide, or like an umbrella under which we move and breathe and have our, our being and make decisions. We follow the same leader and Lord. We follow for the same purpose, for the same goal, the redemption of the world. That will come either in our life or the life to, lives after ours, but it will arrive, the redemption of the world. But before that day, the lordship of Jesus has always been scandalous. Jesus was crucified after all. At this very moment in countries around the world, Christians are being persecuted because they proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Right now, there are labor camps in China where Christians are being shipped out and killed, basically. North Korea, other nations around the world, you could see how the lordship of Jesus is scandalous. Why? Because we are not bowing our knee in allegiance to the state, which is why communism, pantheism of Rome, Marxism, fascism, it's always been opposed to Christianity. Now, we're not anarchists by any means, but quite the opposite. But we will never take a knee to an emperor or some other king or ruler because our citizenship ultimately is not here. It's in heaven. Jesus is Lord. So when first century Christians were fed to lions in the Roman Colosseum, or they were used as a human torch by Emperor Nero, their confession they made with their very lives. Jesus is Lord, not you. It's like Paul said, no longer I, but Christ in me. I don't know, I'm not living for myself anymore, but I'm living for him. I was in charge for too long and I made a mess of things. I'm not the Lord, Jesus is Lord. And that confession is as radical and rebellious as now as it has ever been, and that we are united as the body of Christ 
in that we are in a sense in enemy territory and we have come to proclaim a new kingdom built upon Jesus, one of love and forgiveness of sin and redemption of the world. Now, if you know me for a while, especially when I was younger, I really liked rock music a lot. I've been to a lot of rock music concerts, play guitar, you know, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Alice Cooper's music necessarily, but I think Alice Cooper is a pretty cool guy. He was sort of the original shock rock person in the 1970s, a little before my time. But he was re- his father was a pastor, and Cooper famously sort of, you know, left the Christianity of his youth behind and pursued this sort of evil, you know, uh, you know rock star life. And he is, later in life, though, he, he uh, came back to the Christianity of his roots and has become a born-again Christian for many years. And he said uh, recently that there was never a rebel more of a rebel than Jesus Christ. He was the ultimate Alice Cooper would say, drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's real rebellion. That's a real revolution. Because it's getting down to the core of who we are as human beings. See, a lot of people today want a cultural revolution. But I would say, you're not being revolutionary enough. Our very nature must be changed, not just the social systems, although sometimes those do need to be changed as well. There must be a revolution in your soul. There must be, you must be born again, as Jesus said. This culture that we may seek to change, it will pass away. But you and I will not. We are, in a sense, immortals after this life. Everyone you meet, when our life ends, we will, our life will not end. We will be with God or we will not be by our own choosing. And when we confess Jesus as Lord here on this planet, on enemy territory, if you will, it is the ultimate revolutionary act, an act, revolutionary act of love, I should say. And in Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes this confession. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. And Jesus says something shocking after Peter's confession. Jesus says, upon this confession you have made, Peter, I will build my church. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? This is interesting, isn't it? Jesus is walking with his disciples, dusty, probably Middle Eastern road. He stops them and says, hey, who do people say that I am? And today, he may look at us, you and I, and say, who do people say that I am? And we would get a lot of answers, wouldn't we? People would say things like, well, Jesus, he was a good guy. He was kind of a hippie. He wore Birkenstocks. He was another option on the spiritual buffet line of America. Uh, he was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Or they, people could say he's a lunatic, And so, and then they said to Jesus, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah. You're you're a prophet. Sounds similar to how we would answer it today. Some would answer it today. But then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter, of course, quick to speak up as he always was, he said, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus says this astounding thing, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. God revealed this to Peter. And when we confess Jesus as Lord, God reveals it to us. It is grace when we see that he is Lord. And then Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now the Catholic church sees this as the beginning of the papacy. He's the first pope. Now obviously we're not Catholic. So we see this as the, on, upon Peter's confession, this powerful confession, the ultimate confession, if you will, that Jesus is Lord. And today Jesus looks at you and I, at our world today, and he asks the same question. Who do you say that I am? It's the ultimate question. I cannot think of a more important question to answer in your life before your life is over. Who do you say that he is? You know, in our world today, I see a lot of deferring to authority. You know, when people make an argument about something, they'll go, well, I read it on the internet, so it must be true. Yeah, well, be careful with that one, especially nowadays. But that, that, that their authority is, well, I read it somewhere. Or the, my authority is, well, I saw it on the news. My authority is, well, my opinion. That's a big authority nowadays. Everybody has an authority that they are drawing from to stand upon, if you will, the cornerstone, really, if you will, of their own argument or lifestyle or worldview or whatever. And Jesus is essentially saying, when he asks, who, who do you say that I am? He's asking, on whose authority are you living and moving and breathing and making decisions? In other words, who do you follow? Who is your Lord? Because everybody follows something or someone. Everyone bases their decisions on something or someone. And God's call today could be to you to crystallize your belief. Who do you say that he is? Do you confess Jesus as Lord with the global family of God? If you do that, the Holy Spirit has shown you this by God's grace because God loves you and he loves me. He loves everybody. He wants everyone to confess that he is Lord because one day the Bible tells us that everyone is going to take a knee and confess that he is Lord, whether they kind of believe it or not. It's undeniable one day that we all will see that he is Lord. In America, we must return to the Lord. We must return to his lordship and authority while there is still time. God calls to us today and says, I want you to choose life and not destruction. I want you to choose peace and not acrimony. I want to be your peace. I want to heal your wounds. I want to take you back. If you have been defiled, I will cleanse you. If you've lived in the burden of guilt and shame, in the chains of bondage, I will set you free. If you've been rejected and abandoned and abused, God says, I will not reject you. I will not abuse you. I will heal you. I will cleanse you. 
Because for our country today, we are at a crossroads. We have two options that lie ahead. Return and revival or judgment and calamity. Our nation's future will be one or the other. And repentance, maybe you know what that word means. Repent, we may see it on a sign and it sounds like a bad word. Repentance is a good word. Repentance feels good. Repentance is given as a gift of God. It's the grace of God shown to us because God wants us to know his love for ourselves. And repentance means to turn around. It can mean to change your mind. But repentance brings revival. Repentance brings personal revival. And revival for our country begins with you and me and our personal lives and our personal prayer lives and how we are relating to God. When Peter preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2, I referred to earlier when he said that Jesus is Lord, Peter also said, repent so that the times of refreshing may come. I don't know about you, but I need some times of refreshing. We all do right now. Repent. He is Lord. And repent so that the times of refreshing may come. Repentance leads to new life, like a seed dying on the outside and being birthed from within. Some people today need to die on the outside and let God bring within us new refreshing and new life and new restoration. But it is our choice. God gives us free will. And will we repent and receive refreshing or will there be future judgment and calamity, the choice is ours, and we need God now more than ever. Because the good news, though, is that the church is still here. The church will always be here because we're built upon the cornerstone of Christ. And Jesus said, as he said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not overcome it. It will never, the, the church of Christ will always stand. Why? Because Jesus is still on the throne. He's still on the throne. He'll always be on the throne. He's the head of the church. He's the the head of the family of God. And his lordship unites us as one. Let's pray together. Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit, thank you that you do unite us through the mystery and the wonder of who you are. You have come to unite every people and nation and tribe and tongue. You have called us to stop looking at our differences and the things that are apparently supposed to divide us. And Lord, you call us to be peacemakers. You call us to beat our weapons into plowshares. You call us to proclaim a new day of the kingdom of God that is here and is coming. And to love each other, not with our tainted, conditional quote-unquote, love, but to love each other as you have first loved us. And that is to see the essence and the character of people's souls, that we are no better than anyone else, and you call us to be servants to those around us. God, as we are part of the global family of God, thank you that it's by your grace that you have included us and weaved us into the beauty, the majesty of your church to be living stones and that we're better together and that when you build us up into your holy temple, 
God, help us to live holy lives outside of, in our own personal lives. May we repent of sin that is holding back the goodness of knowing the goodness of who you are. Bring to mind the things we need to repent of and how we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not served the poor as we should. We have judged people falsely. We have not lived out the golden rule. And before we can maybe be built up into your holy temple, you want to make us holy first on the inside. Search our hearts, O God, and know us. And if there's anything that causes us to sin, root it out, pull it out, cut it out, and lead us into life everlasting. Build us up, O God, into your holy temple, into your global family of God. We worship you, Jesus, as the cornerstone we build our lives upon. In Jesus' name, amen.